Hey there, and welcome to the Pseudo Show, brought to you by the Destination Linux Network. Today, we'll share with you the most common security myths of open source, debunk them live on air, and talk about how the industry is working to correct these issues. All that and more on this episode of the Pseudo Show. Welcome to the Pseudo Show, your home for all things enterprise open source. I'm Eric, the IT guy, and joining me every episode is my inspired co-host, Brandon Johnson. How are you doing today, buddy? Doing all right, Eric. How are you? Oh, it's just another day in paradise. I don't know. That, that's all I got. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, been a, it's been a week. So, but, you know, let's go and dive right into this. Yeah, I'm I'm with you right there. Let's uh, let's dive in and uh, get into our topic. Today's episode of the Pseudo Show is brought to you by none other than Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the easiest and safest way for individuals, teams, and businesses to store, share, and sync sensitive data. You can go to bitwarden.com/dln to check out their amazing service. You may or may not know that websites and apps are under attack every day. And because of this, security breaches occur. When you reuse the same passwords across multiple websites, hackers thank you because they can easily access your email, banks, and other important accounts. This is why security experts recommend that you use a different randomly generated password for every online account. With Bitwarden, you can create these randomly generated passwords that are different for every site you visit. And the best part is Bitwarden will manage all of this for you so you don't have to. Bitwarden works across your devices from mobile, desktop, browser plugins, and even on the command line. When you make the smart move and go check out bitwarden.com DLN and get started for free. If you're like me, though, you'll want to access all that Bitwarden has to offer with the premium edition, especially since the premium edition starts at only $10 per year. That's right, $10 per year. Go to bitwarden.com slash DLN and thank you, Bitwarden, for sponsoring the pseudo show and the entire Destination Linux network. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends over at DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean recently announced their new managed MongoDB service, which is a fully managed database as a service. With managed MongoDB, you can focus more on building scalable, high-performance apps and less on maintaining the database. DigitalOcean built this service in partnership with MongoDB Inc., and together they've ensured that you will get access to all the latest releases of the Mongo database as they become available. As a listener of the Pseudo Show podcast and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free. Actually, better than free, because DigitalOcean is giving you a $100 credit when you go to do.co slash dln mongo. Need more than just a database? You can use your $100 credit to try out all the amazing services DigitalOcean has to offer. Again, go to do.co slash dln-mongo to get started with your $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's new managed MongoDB. And thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the Pseudo Show and the entire Destination Linux network. I'm going to say something that I know will be controversial with the open source community and this audience. And uh, it's bomb, but I actually think open source software has just as many security vulnerabilities as proprietary software. And before Eric, before you object and tell me I'm wrong, like there's 
software is written by humans and humans make mistakes. Whether if you're talking about proprietary software or open source software, it's still, as far as I'm aware, written by people. So, you know, just to kick off the, you know, this episode of debunking uh, open source security myths, I'm just going to put that out there right now. What do you think about that, Eric? It's clickbaity. It's controversial. I like it. <laughs> but if, if you break down what you said, and I had to be clear about this before you started, you're saying that open source software has just as many vulnerabilities to the best that we can tell as proprietary software. So I will agree if you get past that knee-jerk reaction as an open source enthusiast that, no, you cannot tell me that open source technology has vulnerabilities. No. Once you get past that knee-jerk reaction and think about it, it's true. But you absolutely hit the nail on the head that open source software has issues. It has vulnerabilities. It has bugs, just like the proprietary version. The advantage, though, of being an open source product or project, whichever the case may be, and having a community and a team of developers and a a global culture of working on code and making things better, whether it's a a project that you're passionate about or a project that you just happen to stumble upon where you found a, a bug and you're reporting it. The advantage is the number of eyes. I wish I knew who uh, who said this originally. I've I've heard it quoted many times, but with many eyes, any bug is shallow. That that might have actually been Linus Torvalds himself. But the more people that you have looking and working on your project, the quicker those bugs come to light. The easier that they can be identified and remediated and fixed back in back into the production code. So, yeah, I definitely uh, definitely would have to agree. Yeah, granted, like with open source, like any industry expert, security experts can just dive in and look at code. I mean, one of the sponsors of the show, Bitwarden, their code is 100% open source and is regularly audited by uh, security experts, which I think a lot more open source projects need to do that, especially ones that run critical infrastructure across the planet. But that still doesn't mean that that there's problems. And and that's really all I really wanted to, how how I wanted to frame this. It's not just about eyes. It's also like, keeps going back to, I keep harping on this and I'm going to get known as open source uh, supply chain nerd. But it's all about the supply chain and and like like one piece of a piece of software that's, insecure it's a, a domino effect this that you know one library can be used in several hundred or even thousand open source projects and that impacts uh, systems all over the globe well i don't think brandon the open source supply chain guy as nice a ring as as eric the it guy does but we'll work on it <laughs> we'll wordsmith that a bit and get back to you all right that's actually our, our first and probably the most common myth that we see in technology is that open source is more secure. When, when you look at it from an inherent perspective, no, it's it's not more secure. There's just more eyes. Usually has a faster time to, to light on any particular issue. But that's probably the one I hear about the most. Uh, the second one, and this one has gotten a lot of controversy as of late, and that is that free means it's cheap. And we can actually take this from two different perspectives. The first is that free means that it's cheap. Everyone has heard the phrase, you get what you pay for. If you don't pay for software, that must mean that, that, must mean that is garbage. When we wrote the script for this, I actually thought of a second 
kind of a sub myth, if you will, that free means uh, cheap in the fact that if you use free software in the enterprise, that you're saving money. That's not necessarily true. I mean, would you would you take your car down to to Joe three houses down because he watches a American car restoration TV show and get your oil changed for free? Or would you rather take it to someone who's licensed and certified by uh, standards organizations to manage your software? So there's two different ways we can tackle this, Brandon. Which, which one really resonates with you? Yeah, they kind of both do. I mean, like from a, like free equals cheap, you still have to pay for it somewhere, right? Let's not take the Linux operating system. Let's take something a little, people that think of less. Let's actually take like open source libraries that don't necessarily have a company behind them that just get maintained by someone as uh, part-time, or maybe they do work for a large corporation, but that, and that library just happens to be open source and they're using it somewhere in one of their products uh, or, or an internal IT application. And we see this starting to happen all the time with like Silicon Valley companies like Lyft and Uber, Facebook, of course, Google putting out their, a lot of their code that they use internally. So let's stick with with a library. You know, these libraries get used. Now you need to, not only do you need to start maintain, helping to maintain that library, yet now you, so you have to hire someone that understands it. So this is my perspective on this. I mean, this comes back to a give back versus just a, the take in open source. But if uh, you're going to build an, an application and you're going to start relying on specific libraries, you need to start owning that technical debt. And that includes helping maintain to maintain those projects. That's one of the things that I think will help keep open source secure, if not make it even more secure than proprietary software, if more companies that leverage free libraries in their enterprise software and contribute. Actually, in things else, I'll probably even go back to that. I'll just contribute with code. I keep coming back to this, contribute with money, right? Interviewed uh, the folks from Tidelift. We've talked about of other ways of pushing money to projects. Money speaks, money keeps people engaged. A lot of libraries just die on the vine because maintainers decide to quit. And then that leaves a hole in the open source supply chain. Because what I've noticed is even after a library dies, like it's not maintained for years, I've seen libraries in being utilized in major open source projects. And I'm like, why is this still here? It's not being maintained anymore. <laughs> but there's no replacement for it. So like, in a way, you know, I, now that I say that, in a way, open source can be more vulnerable than proprietary software in that regard because then it impacts more. I mean, like, go, goes back, like, if you use a common library and it stops getting developed, how many open source projects could that impact? Is it just one? Is it 100? So that, that's one of the things that I think about all the time when investing in uh, an open source project, at, whether that's my time, like put, put it, dumping code into it, or just implementing it, 
what does that look like? But you know, what what pieces are in the in the code that are being maintained and not are not that that's the stuff that keeps me up at night as a technologist and as a as a technology leader. To tie it back into the main point, I think free means cheap. The reality is, how do you want to pay for your software? Is that in picking up the technical debt for an open source library that may or may not be getting actively supported? Is that by paying a company like Tidelift, who can then pay the developer to ensure that that... Um, we keep coming back to Tidelift, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> not, not to go down that rabbit trail. I mean, they are unique in, in what they do. Or to pay a vendor for a, a pre-built product that you can then that then looks at those libraries and decides which one matches the the needs of of the customer problem the closest and then they take on the technical debt or they hire the developer we've talked about ways to contribute to open source early on in this show companies like SUSE and Red Hat are are very well known for sort of adopting either projects or even adopting developers for projects and giving them a badge and a paycheck and say, you know, this this particular project is critical to the internet infrastructure, so we're going to pay you to continue to maintain it. So it really is, you're going to pay for the software that you use one way or the other. These, these free operating systems or free libraries, things like that, you're going to end up paying for them one way or the other. It's a question of where, where do you want to pay that debt? Do you have an excess of talent on your team? then by all means, help a project out because you'll be helping make the internet safer across the board by helping take on some of that technical debt. If you have an excess of budget that you're willing to throw some money at, a, at an open source project, then do that. It's what do you have that you can use to, to pay, pay for that, that software, whether it's for a, a license or giving back in a different way. Keeps coming back to scalability. Maintainers, you know, gotta eat, so... <laughs> are, are we sure is, is that confirmed I, i'm pretty sure i'm pretty sure uh maintainers are still people so they need to eat <laughs> it hasn't been uh ha- hasn't been absorbed by skynet just yet yeah it's about maintaining it's about finding it i mean it's it's not just about it's not just like oh a specific thing gets exploited like when i think about security i don't just think about heartbleed i think about every everything down the chain Right, I mean, like, or something like Heartbleed. I, I got to think of everything down the chain. I mean, I mean, that was a huge problem, but well, and I, before you hold on to your thought, I, I think we should kind of define what we're what we're talking about here. It's funny during our show prep, we we realized that Heartbleed actually came out in 2014, and that was <laughs> in technology years. That was a really long time ago, but the result of technology culture impact of Heartbleed, I think, really still rings in, in people's ears today. So just to kind of define what Heartbleed was, Heartbleed was a vulnerability in a heart, say the heartbeat communication between a client and a web server. It had to do with validating the size of, of the Heartbeat packet. So when you open up a web page and you got an active session, what happens is your browser will occasionally send a packet to that web page that says, hey, I'm still here, keep the connection open. And there was a vulnerability within OpenSSL, within, uh, within TLS and SSL that allowed a bad actor to manipulate the size of the heartbeat package, which could then crash the web server. And, well, not so much crash the web server, but it could, it could uh, compromise the integrity of the web server and grant a bad actor access to do some pretty 
much more nefarious things. And at the time that Heartbleed was discovered, it affected over 17% of all the SSL servers on the internet. If if Heartbleed were to have come out today, I think that number would have would have been dramatically higher. If you look at the OpenSSL project back in 2014, think about this. OpenSSL drives just about every piece of encrypted traffic on the internet. You know how big their team was in 2014 when this vulnerability came out? There was 11 developers and they had an annual budget of $1 million. $1 million, 11 people to basically keep the entirety of internet traffic secure. That just seems pretty rough. But you know what happened? When Heartbleed was discovered, it was actually fixed by members of the community, people that were auditing the OpenSSL package and were actually able to figure out a way to fix the, the issue. It, it was basically just um, a, a health check that, that uh, was overlooked when, when building the OpenSSL package. So it was, it was a fairly easy fix. But this is this kind of goes back to your your statement at the beginning, Brandon, of how if this were proprietary software, we would have had to wait for OpenSSL Inc. or you know whatever that company would be called to actually retask their resources to go in and find this vulnerability and fix it. Whereas with open source, as far as the vulnerabilities are concerned, Heartbleed did a lot of damage, but it was also very short lived. Just because once once there were eyes on it, it was fixed very very quickly. There are lots of eyes on it, but. It could have easily have been as well, like uh, some obscure library that just went unmaintained. For, from my perspective, that was lucky uh, <laughs> <laughs> because there's just something that got missed. Well, where you where you say luck, I see the power of the open source community. Yeah, we got lucky that it wasn't like a lot of code that needed to be replaced. Oh, okay, I got you. Right. I mean, we got lucky that it wasn't an unmaintained library that that would cause the issue. That wasn't the case. It, like relatively speaking, I mean like I'm sure it was pretty hard to fix, but it was in terms of like, oh, we got to replace this. It's like replace the library. That would that would have been a lot harder. You're alluding to an abandoned yeah, an abandoned library where you can't find the original maintainer. They didn't pass on the keys of the kingdom to anyone else, so no one can make any changes. So basically anyone that Anyone that uses that library would then have to fork the code, find the problem themselves, fix it, and then redeploy it into an upstream application. Yeah, I was reading this a couple of weeks ago. I'll make sure the link uh, for, in the articles in the show notes that means 60% of maintainers abandon their projects. That's a huge amount of people deciding, I'm not going to maintain this anymore. You know, if you become dependent on that, like to, it, from my perspective, that's a recipe for security vulnerability. And it goes back to the no support thing, right? Of open source if you don't per, if you don't pay for if you don't pay for it. In a way it's a, you get what you pay for. Pick a library that's no longer maintained, that that's on you. It's not on on anyone else. It's not on your vendors, it's not on, it's you know it's maybe on your developers, you know, they they probably selected it, but it's also on the CIO for not for not and CTOs for not checking it. It's on the security team for not looking at the health of the project. This is the stuff I worry about every single day. It's not about bad guys looking at the open SSL code. That doesn't keep me up at night. Yeah, you may find a bug in there, but is it really exploitable? There are hundreds of bugs in code, but are they exploitable? I don't know what the statistics are on that, like how many bugs are actually exploitable, but are, if the bugs are actually exploitable, that's not a big deal. 
what keeps me up at night is code that goes unmaintained for actually, I, I'm not even going to say years. I'm going to say months. That's what keeps me up at night. I'm not worried about large open source projects. I'm worried about the smaller projects that the larger projects use. So we kind of touched on a lot of these. We talked about how open source is not inherently more secure. We talked about free, meaning it's cheap. We kind of talked about that a couple of different ways. But one of the myths that we could probably just kind of laugh and move on is that open source code is developed by amateurs. Strangely enough, though, the funny thing was, I kind of almost marked this off of our list uh, to talk about, but, but then I actually heard someone the other day a technologist, someone well-respected in the industry just said that, yeah, I, I can't use open source because, you know, it's just a bunch of tinkerers. It's like, oh, I hadn't heard that one in a while, but I figured that one deserved an honorable mention. <laughs> well, I'm going to, I want to respond, I'm going to respond to that. I mean, that, that, that can't be further from the truth. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe like some piece of software, like a note-taking application. Like maybe, yeah, that that's done by amateur, done by an amateur. Yeah, just doing it for fun. The vast majority of open source software used in enterprise is not done by a 16-year-old high school student. It is done by professionals working at IBM, Red Hat, SUSE, Canonical, Cloudera. It's the top open source projects in the world. Well, you, you left off a, a huge chunk of uh, the open source development that's going on nowadays. Companies like Netflix, Uber, Google. I mean, these companies, well, I mean, Google being the exception to that list, that are not predominantly software vendors, but they have begun to release either their processes like Pinterest or their code like Netflix. Yeah, I, I did bring that up earlier. I mean, like the Silicon Valley uh, companies like Facebook, Uber, you know, they're putting out awesome code that's being used everywhere. Jaeger, used for in the container space, that is heavily used by many Kubernetes projects, even not Kubernetes. I mean, it's, it, yeah, it's built for, for containers, for trace routing in containers, but it is not done by amateurs by any means. Uh, the Linux kernel is done by some of the best professionals in the world. I had a debate on this in 2006. And when I set out to do my career back then, it was actually the year before in 2005, I made a conscious decision that I was going to bet my career on free and open source software. I'm pretty sure I won that bet. <laughs> and I don't regret it for a single second. And, and it's simply because open source is one. I know in the interview with Tidelift, we talked about a company that didn't think they were using open source software anywhere. It turned out it was everywhere. I mean, <laughs> yeah, and if you think that you're not, you're wrong. You're using it every day. And the security of that software is not just the maintainer's responsibility, it is yours. If you're using it in mission-critical systems, whether that's like processing credit cards or, or maintaining a patient data, it is your responsibility to maintain it. So that's my PSA for the week. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, there, we could talk about a few of these other myths, but I, I feel like 
especially in the past few years, that a lot of them are just so ridiculous that they're not even worth talking about, maybe just mentioning, like the idea that open source software can't scale. Of course, we've we we talked a bit about how bad guys can can see the bugs in your code. Well, so can thousands of developers across the world. We could debate the the lack of support. We we kind of touched on that. One of the things that we've noticed over the course of this show is we found that there is now an urgent need to fix the open source supply chain. And we talked for quite some time about doing a myth-busting episode about, about something. And we, we've been talking a lot about security lately and the open source supply chain. One of the things that inspired recording this episode was, so not too long ago, uh, Google, in partnership with the Open Source Security Foundation, OSSF, our acronyms just keep getting worse, don't they, Brandon? Yeah, they do. <laughs> <laughs> Google and the OSSF actually partnered on releasing a almost a scanner that will evaluate the health of your of your project and will actually produce a health report and even provide you with a badge that you can attach to your project to ensure that you have to publicize to people using your project that you've complied with with this almost like a scorecard. So Brandon, you, you came across this the other day. You want to go into a little bit more depth? Yeah, so what it does is it kind of analyzes the project. And like you can also just, and also some of the results are published, but the scorecard can actually just look at a repo and go, what's kind of the, based off of code reviews, contrib- you know, number of contributors, how active it is, how often it does CI tests, et cetera. There's lot, lots of criteria. But like, for example, is it active? I believe the scoring is uh, from one to 10. If your project is very active, it's getting regular contributions, you're going to get a 10. I bet if I haven't ran it against uh, an inactive repo, I could probably put it against one of mine, it'll probably say it's a zero (laughs) (laughs) or a minus 10. Uh, So... uh, Be careful, you may end up getting yourself banned off of GitHub. Oh, whatever. <laughs> so it looks at a lot of things like what, what's, uh, how many signed releases have you had? How many, it, there's lots of criteria here. Like one of the ones that they do give an example of is Kubernetes. What's the security policy? What's the, in this case, I got a fail of 10 in this example. I don't know if that's really still the case or code review. Got a pass of 10 because there's so much code review that happens. It's a active, so it gets a pass with a score of 10. I think this is really important stuff to know about any project that you use. Run it again. Uh, this is something that it will be in the show notes. I think uh, this is really important to know the current health of a project. A point of clarification here, mostly because it's not readily apparent in the article. But is this something that I, as a random Joe developer uh, that works for company X, is trying to develop an application, and I come across a library that I think matches my, my requirements, can I, as someone who just clones that repository, run this, run this tool against that? Or is this something that has to be done from the maintainer perspective on their repo? So based on what I understand is that you can run this against any repo. You don't have to be the maintainer. Perfect. If I'm the CIO of a company, I would almost require this tool at, at this point before you include anything. I mean, instead of just saying, no, we're not using any libraries, but these like six or seven 
most popular or anything, I would almost set a requirement that before you include an open source project in our product that we're going to sell to customers, they have to have a certain score in certain areas or at least be trending upwards. Yeah. If we have a million dollar product, you're not going to bring an open source project, an open source library with a score of negative seven and put it into our product that we tell our customers is secure and is going to take care of their data. Exactly. I mean, and we'll talk about this in a later episode in more detail, but it there's also, I don't know if I want to call it a tool, but definitely something that I would want to reference to get a, a good bird's eye view of a project. And this is uh, LFX Insights. This is a Linux Foundation project that takes a look at several open source foundations and projects. So, for example, like Ceph, like how many contributors are to it? How many lines of code? You know, what, you know where are, you, are they pulling this data? And it will say, and it gives you a, a very similar scorecard. You know, how active is the project? Things like that. I, this is something I want to get. De- I'll get deeper into with Eric in a future episode, or even maybe some other content later down the road. But this is something that I think is really important when trying to understand the health of a project and potentially the security health of a project as well. Not just its technic, not just its general technical health. And then a second resource that we'd like to provide. This will also be in the show notes. Is It's an article published on Linux.com by the editorial staff talking about how to measure the health of open source communities. It starts out by talking about the importance of metrics, but then it starts to look at how to evaluate the health of, it mentions LFX Insights, and it talks about how to measure the, the financial, the technical, and community health of a project. We'll include that in the show notes. And... Like Brandon said, this is sticking our foot in the door of some upcoming content that we have in mind to do and some conversations we're, we're hoping to bring in interviewees to, to discuss because this, the supply chain vulnerability issue isn't just a SolarWinds thing. It, that was just one of many, many issues that have come to light over the past 12 months that have really brought it home to, to folks like Brandon and myself that this is a problem and it's it's only getting worse and we need to we need to address how to fix some of these issues. We've talked about how to how to fix it from a developer and maintainer perspective, but there's also steps that that you can take as as a developer or as an end user in a company to basically ensure that your upstream dependencies like open source libraries are secure and things like the initiatives that the Linux Foundation is taking as well as this new product by Google or this new project by Google, I should say, are trying to address. This was just kind of an entertaining look at some of the issues that non-technologists think is uh, faces the open source community, but the, the reality is, is much, much more serious. So if you take anything away from this episode, take a look at the Scorecard project, and uh, we'd love to hear your feedback. We'd love to hear what you think. Brandon, before we wrap up, do you have any other closing thoughts? No, I, I think I gave my PSA. Uh, and... <laughs> I think people might start getting sick of me uh, saying it, but this stuff's important and I can't emphasize it enough. If you're a maintainer, figure out a way to monetize. I mean, that that's, and, and stay engaged because uh, quite frankly, we, we like what you do and you know, we want to keep, we want you to keep going. 
And in terms of monetization, if you're an open source maintainer, go to opencollective.com, create, you know, what they're called, they call a collective, you know, let them handle the legalese stuff for you. They'll manage the whole thing for you. I think that's one of the big barriers for this. And then as well as Tidelift. I mean, we've brought them on the show before. I mean, there's no no sponsorship here, but if you're a maintainer and you have uh and you think you have a library that is really important that you know whether that's your organization that's using it or someone else that you know is using some other organizations using it side lift I, I think would be a great way to monetize your work and also our the greater dln community is also here uh, to help maybe not necessarily from a monetization standpoint but from a feedback standpoint make sure to go to dln forum and if you need feedback on your project, we have a great community over there that can get you uh, the additional feedback you may need. We'll have links to all of this and more in the show notes. And on behalf of myself and Brandon, the open source supply chain guru guy, we're still wordsmithing that. We just want to say thank you so much for joining us today. As always, your feedback is welcome. Head on over to pseudo.show slash discuss. If you'd like more of Brandon and I, you can find it over at pseudo.show or on social media at pseudoshowpodcast. You can catch more awesome content over at our network partners, destinationlinux.network. Brandon, anywhere else you'd like to send folks? You can follow me on Twitter at dbrandonjohnson or at my website, open-tech.net. And you can follow me at ITGuyEric or on ITGuyEric.com. Remember, the Pseudo Show is your place for all things enterprise open source. Until next time.